Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 36 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Don't forget that the best way to receive every new episode direct to your device is to subscribe on your podcast app of choice, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, SoundCloud, or any other. Just search for Global Captive Podcast. This week, we have not one, but two captive owner interviews lined up. In a moment, I will introduce our guest co-hosts, but we will also be hearing from Mary Ellen Moriarty, Vice President for Property and Casualty at EIIA in Chicago. And our discussion in the second half of the episode is with Angus Rhodes and David Thomas at Ventiv on how analytics and data can increasingly be used to the insurance buyer's advantage. But first, I am really delighted to welcome Lauren Nihal, Group Head of Insurance at Steel and Mining Giant ArcelorMittal. Lauren is also firm a board member and takes the lead on many of their captive projects. So Lauren, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Thank you for welcoming me. And so Lauren, perhaps you could start off by just outlining a bit about your role at um, ArcelorMittal. Well, but as, as you have said, you know, I, I am the group head of insurance for ArcelorMittal and, and as such, I'm, I'm, I would say, simply in charge of, of leading the worldwide risk and insurance team, uh, as well as of operating our global insurable risk management and financing strategy, including captive reinsurance companies and, and in-house brokerage operations. Fantastic. I, I didn't actually realize you had an in-house brokerage operation as well. So that's, that's something I've, I've already learned um, about you guys already. In terms of the captive and, and kind of Arslan Mattel's strategy, how, how do you go about, uh, go about utilizing the, the reinsurance captives? Well, I mean, we use it in, the, in I would say, in, a, in, in, in both a sophisticated but quite basic way. And, 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 and we use our captive with three main objectives, I would say. The first one is, of course, to minimize the, the, the total cost of risk. So we use it, you know, in financing frequency, capturing on the writing profit, leveraging on the diversification effect from the group, economies of scale, um, and so on. Uh, the second objective is, is about optimizing risk transfer solution. So then we, we use your, our captive uh, for filling gaps, you know, removing specific uh, sub-exposure that the insurance market doesn't really want or overprice. Uh, we use it as a central underwriting tool for combining, for instance, different reinsurance solutions into one single insurance product for our entities uh, and that kind of, of, of potential solution. And the third objective is to use it as an operational tool for aligning our insurance solution uh, at group level. So meaning, you know, being sure that the deductible and the retention level we um, we get at the entities level is matching the group profile. Uh, it's also helped to harmonize the insurance standards we apply across the group and to ensure that every entity in any country can access the best potential insurance cover uh, thanks to the to the to the leverage on the group size. So I would say that's 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 quite you know usual objectives, and we do that with I would say two main principles: is that we use our captive across all lines of business because we consider that these three objectives are applicable for all lines of business, and the second principle is we never use our captive without a proper risk transfer solution. So we always use it to support a risk transfer solution, meaning that we do not underwrite risk 100%. Uh, in our captive, except if if, in, if insurance is, is only needed for, I would say, paperwork or or, or just having certificate of cover, 
but the principle is always to use the captive to support a risk transfer solution. Great, really interesting, Lauren. I really appreciate you you outlining that kind of philosophy uh, that you have at the organisation. Just off air, just now, Lauren, you mentioned to me that last year, um, yeah, you had obviously we had a very you know hardening market, and you were expecting, and you told your team, well, it can't get any worse. Of course, we then had the pandemic, and uh, and the market has hardened further for for various reasons. What advantage do you believe the captive? gives corporates in this in this really tough time in regards to the, the hardening insurance market? Well, I would say the, the, the basic and primary benefit is, is flexibility. Um, you know, there are multiple tools and, and mechanisms for, for financing risk and, and captive is simply one of them. So if, if you are lucky enough to have already a captive in, in operating, uh, you at least have another tool that can help you and your organization in, in responding to the to the shortage of capacity and, and the price increase we see from the hardening markets. So so basically a captive allow allows your your company to 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 buffer insurance market condition uh, you know thanks to the risk financing technicalities and, and it's it's really a, a helpful tool let's say to face you know how stricter the insurance market has become and and i would say that that's really uh, the main aspect you have something that can help you to respond but of course it's not a magical solution and it's it's just another tool in your toolkit i would say so how how lauren just maybe going back to that previous question as well regarding how you utilize the captive have you had to do that yourselves internally regarding to consider the levels of retention or the levels of risk that the captive takes on to support yourself in that in that in that insurance buying process as a captive playing an active part in that yes yes absolutely it is and uh, so what you know what i explain with our, with our objective is is of course now even more relevant than in the past because of the hardening insurance market and and one development we have seen for the last renewals is is really an in intensification of the of the use of our captive for uh, you know, protecting gaps or for fronting layers of coverage in, in, in towers where premium pricing is really prohibitive. And also around, you know, exposure that are a bit, you know, where the capacity is a bit disappearing in the market. And we use the captive to fill to fill the gaps uh, in the program. So it, it's beyond this, the, the the usual way of, of financing frequency you know, on the on the bottom layers, we see more and more our captive being used also on the top layers, but not fully. So to remove capacity or exposure or, or to just not transfer some sub layers um, with with that are, let's say, overpriced. Well, we're going to hear more from Lauren in a bit. But now our captive owner interview this week is with Mary Ellen Moriarty, Vice President for Property and Casualty at EIIA. The organization utilizes an association captive and a risk retention group in Vermont. And Mary Ellen provided great detail on the size of their programs, which was actually very surprising to me, the challenges provided by COVID-19 and how they're tackling a tough reinsurance environment. EIIA actually stands for, even though we don't formally use its formal name, stands for Educational and Institutional Insurance Administrators. And we are a not-for-profit company here in Chicago that has 35 employees that specifically serve the industry of private, faith-inspired higher education institutions and seminaries. 
And so we have a history that is an really deeply rooted in the history of the United States and that the company was formed in the 1960s to serve the historically black colleges and universities. The 1960s were similar to the days we're living in today in that campuses were used to be centers of collecting people for purposes of demonstrations. And Mm. so the historically black colleges were denied insurance coverage. And in the 1960s, their mission was critical to the advancement of many uh, black students that really didn't have an opportunity for education anywhere else other than the HBCU institutions. And so they clustered together and they formed EIIA, which eventually has grown to a company that will serve any faith-inspired private higher education institution that has less than 5,000 full-time equivalent students. We are not able to serve in a um, college or university with a big medical center. It's not the nature of our program. So in 2002, we formed College Insurance Company, primarily to satisfy the regulatory requirements of the workers' compensation industry. But over the years, have rigorously used that for, it's probably seven or eight different policies are, are provided now through College Insurance Company. And then in 2009, we formed College Risk Retention Group, and that policy provides the general liability coverage for our members, which for higher education is just a complicated policy. We've got some exposures that are really not well highly regarded in the commercial insurance marketplace, sexual misconduct. You can see through the news all of the traumatic brain injury issues that are happening on campuses across the country. We've got security guard liability, medical malpractice. We've got students in practicum anywhere across the country trying to practice their craft at different medical centers. And so for us, it's a very high-risk policy. Having brought the CAP to be a part of it really makes our engagement with reinsurers much more um, highly regarded than if we were just trying to purchase first-dollar coverage. You mentioned uh, just before we started recording that uh, obviously you, you're used to going to, to Lloyd's uh, once a year to talk to them. Um, how, how do you do you do you utilize all the different kind of insurance centers around the world? Is it is, is London kind of primarily where you go for, for your reinsurance? You know, we engaged, you know, and we're so grateful for this now. We really look at the global insurance marketplace as supporting our members because of the size of our risk. Our property insurance program probably has 30 or 40 underwriters on it. And in today's day and age, we are so blessed to have that. Um, So going to London, you know, we access the London markets, but we also have Asian markets, German markets. I mean, we're trying to capitalize on capacity across over the globe Hmm. so that if something really goes bad somewhere, We'll have friends everywhere that will be able to support us and help us out. On the pandemic then, uh, Mary Ellen, how has the pandemic impacted um, the organization EIIA directly and uh, indirectly? You know, another blessing for EIIA is the property insurers provide a sliver of, of communicable disease coverage. So we actually have some element of business interruption coverage for our campuses. And so we've really been working hard with the markets that are really having to respond to that. But at the same time, our staff has, normally we're people that travel a ton, but we have been 
quarantined here in Chicago and in that time really been partners to our institutions in terms of launching a successful fall semester. There have been a boatload of regulatory requirements that we've had to work through. There have been a boatload of legal requirements that we've had to work through in order to bring these students safely on campus. Um, we created a whole web page on our website that is dedicated solely to providing our institutions information regarding COVID-19. We crafted and launched a return to campus manual that our institutions have used to as the, the foundation for their own individual programs that they are um, having their faculty, staff, and students adhere to in terms of coming back to campus. COVID has been probably the highest level of focus for our staff over the period of time that we've been um, at working at home. Kind of, I guess, um, emphasizes the support that a, an association or group captive or member-owned captive can can really provide to its members in, in, a, in an event like this, because presumably th- those members probably wouldn't be expecting that level of support if they were just buying their insurance in a traditional way from, from the marketplace. It sounds like you're able to really pull those resources to provide that kind of best-in-class guidance across all of your membership. And you know what, it, it both is more, it's financially efficient because if we have to secure out, outside expertise, we're paying for that expertise once and distributing it to 135 members as opposed to each of the 135 members securing that expertise, but also they help each other. The, you know, in, in the world of higher education, very different than the commercial world, there's a high level of sharing. And mm. so if somebody develops a terrific, COVID testing protocols, it's immediately shared with our 135 members. And so as much as, you know, EIAA staff is wonderful and dedicated to its members, our members are dedicated to each other. The amount of helping out that I see amongst our membership is really extraordinary. So um, just lastly, obviously, uh, we're in a, we're in a hard market, uh, deep into a hard market now, I guess, Two questions on, on this topic. First is, how, is the, how have the members directly benefited from um, being, being part of the association uh, captive and, and the RRG? Have, it, have they been insulated almost from that, those kind of price rises? And secondly, in terms of reinsurance discussions, how are you seeing the hard market impact your kind of reinsurance uh, renewal discussions? Because we, we're, we're involved in so many different coverages, you know, we've got a casualty renewal on September 1st. And For each of our 135 members, we provide $50 million of excess umbrella coverage. And so the marketplace has been tough. I mean, the the overall higher education market has contracted significantly. And so maintaining this $50 million coverage, and it's per institution, they're not sharing that limit, has really been a challenge. We have been really blessed with loyal partners, but what we have asked college risk retention group to do is to step up and be willing to front a layer of the excess liability in the event that one of our existing partners fails. We have reached out to the reinsurance marketplace as support for that that front, and we've really got a nice welcome. It's highly likely that we will be expanding the utilization of our captive for that excess liability piece because the um, reinsurance market has been interested in participating at a higher level of an umbrella. 
When it comes to the property market and, and college insurance company is the responsible for the first $750,000 of each property loss. And then we go into an engagement with our 45 carriers. I think we will have a difficult renewal. Again, one thing that EIIA has done right, and we always give credit to the Lexington Insurance Company, because back in 2003, they required that we develop technology to assure replacement cost value on each building on each of our campuses. So when we come to the global market or when we come to the London marketplace with our Keystone property valuation, for the last 10 years, we have been advised that it's the best submission in the industry. And so we think by having really good data that our potential colleagues, as well as our existing underwriters, can use to justify the pricing to their policy, we're in a better position than most. But the market continues to harden even after 7-1. I think people were anticipating, okay, 7-1 was really difficult, and perhaps things would get a little bit lighter, and that is not the reports that I'm getting through the marketplace. So um, we are anticipating a really tough March property, March 2021 renewal, but we are getting ready and um, we are really proud of the fact that whatever data analytic an underwriter will wants to look at, we will get it for them some way, somehow. And so I think that's what keeps us interesting in the marketplace and then our underwriters are really clear on what risk they're taking on and are able to communicate that to their superiors in their office that have to support their decisions. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation, or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. We will be back with Lauren Nihal shortly, but to kick off the second half of GCP 36, I'm delighted to be joined by Angus Rhodes and David Thomas, both with technology specialists Ventive. Angus is Global Product Manager with the firm and David is a Director, very much following on from the next-gen risk finance concept discussed with Ward Ching of Aon in GCP35. Myself, David and Angus explored what data and analytics tools are available to captive owners today and how they can help in this hardening market. David began by arguing why now is a good time for insureds to be taking more ownership of their own risk data and analytics.
Ahead of this this podcast, we, we've taken the opportunity to discuss this question with some of our captive owner clients across various domiciles. And the general view is that the market conditions in the past, say, 12 months have, have most certainly created the need and the opportunity for them to carefully reevaluate their risk appetite. And it's both the level of risk they will write to offset the lack of capacity, as well as the level of risk they will see to insurers and reinsurers. Clearly, if the reinsurance costs are being driven upwards, then the captive may want to consider greater retentions. And it's it's the decisions around retentions that requires appropriate due diligence and should be driven by the available data and the ability to interpret it. And the feedback we have is that our clients recognize that the real value comes from not just owning their data per se, but firstly, housing this in a structured database And secondly, having appropriate analytics tools to slice, dice, and model the data. In simple terms, the advantage of a structured database is that every claim is linked to a policy and, where relevant, also linked to a location or entity. And it's only then can the analytics be reliable and meaningful. So then our clients are in a position to own and control their data and have much greater confidence in it to help drive and support the right decision making. You know, in terms of, you know, is it is it the right time for insurers? You know, I think we really should be looking at what insurers and reinsurers have been doing for many years. They've really increasingly used sort of more advanced analytics and really having all the data to better understand the risk for their clients on a you know whether either an individual portfolio basis and they use that to determine what risks they're going to take on and at what price and really i think you know you know this these tools used to be really out of the reach for a typical captive you you needed some data science teams and the rest but really the market has really moved on in that term so now the analytic tools are much more accessible for the sort of everyday captive to start engaging in some of the analysis that used to be only available for the uh, sort of larger insurers and reinsurers. So I really do think uh, that it's a good time to look at it, especially with this uh, hardening market. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting to hear and kind of tallies with a few other conversations we've had quite recently on the podcast. So David, how, how can they actually, if they're not already doing this, how can captive owners go about doing this and, and what insights can can this uh, approach give them? Well, certainly there are, there are vendors such as Ventive that can provide systems to support captives, captive owners to take, I say, the real ownership of their data and greater control over their risk management. The, the systems available are generally modular and so they enable the recording of contracts, whether direct or seeded, together with details of the premium written and earned position. There's also claims modules, which will enable the recording of the risk and financial data for each claim. And if the claims are then linked to the insurance contracts, then the captive can gain insights into loss ratios per entity or policy line. What we really need to understand is really data is the key to all of this. You know, so before you can get some of the more advanced insights, you've really got to get control and ownership of your data. And really, the the tools that are available now really will help uh, you deliver that. So whether it's uh, to consolidating your renewal data, generating documentation, uh, consolidating data from insurers and TPAs, the tools will help you pull that information in. It will first then deliver efficiency benefits 
in terms of eliminating a lot of manual tasks, um, which obviously will help you kind of concentrate on the more valuable management and risk management activities you want to do. But I think one of the areas that uh, is really interesting and is certainly uh, changed probably a little bit slowly, to be fair, for, for the whole insurance market is we're, we're working a lot more in terms of having some API connectivities with clients and their, their insurers. Yeah, so on, on those other, other, other benefits, Angus, we had Ward Ching from Aon on co-hosting the last episode, GCP35, and he was talking about taking getting much more understanding of your risk and that giving you a lot more bargaining power or a much better idea of what you believe the price of your risk should be to the insurance market. Do you, do you kind of go along with that? And how or what other advantages do you think this analytics will give captive owners when they're in negotiations with the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, certainly listening to Wu Ching, absolutely agreed everything he was talking about. Clearly, you know, he's been involved in, in, in Aon in that position in some of the more perhaps uh, advanced uh, captives and looking at solutions. But I think everyone can take from the approach uh, uh, they've done there. And really, when you look at it, in the past, I kind of felt that uh, many insureds, and whether that's a captive or, or a parent, have almost been blind and let the, the sort of insurer and reinsurer's market lead them in terms of what is an appropriate price, what is their risk profile, and I think really should turn that round. The other side, and really I suppose you've got to look at this from a, a couple of perspectives, depending on the nature of risk. You know, so In some cases, it's all about the exposure and then understanding the company's risk profile and how it's exposed to the risk, whether that's NatCat, and obviously using the that information yourselves and generating analytics means that you can be on the front foot to kind of be dictating more what the price should be. And I think uh, Ward was talking about the strike price. You know, understanding where where is the real risk and where and what you should be paying for that. You know, it's funny, I did, did some ana- analysis some years back, um, and this was just looking at uh, earthquake and how the different markets basically price certain areas, and that may not actually be representing real risk. So by you demonstrating where your risk is and comparing it perhaps with some external data from maybe, you know, I think uh, certainly RMS and other providers are certainly getting more into uh, sharing their data and using some of the more advanced analytic tools that can give insights. You can then geospatially display that and really help your negotiations to get the best price, but also to understand where your risk is and from a risk retention point of view, understand uh, what you should be taking on. I think it also leads into a little bit where captives probably have got uh, a more active claim portfolio, and then really some of these uh, automated predictive analytic tools can come into their own from a sort of a, a, a loss a loss control and uh, reducing uh, the retention costs, looking at where those claims are coming from, using both the claim data, external benchmark, and other, other external data to identify where you need to focus uh, loss control activities. So I think there's a, there's a lot of advances there where it can really help the captive. So just just lastly, then, uh, David, we've we've obviously talked a lot about this analytics and what can be done with captives. I'm just interested to know with Ventive, do you already work with with captives directly, or or how does the captive fit into relationships that you already have with with large insureds? We we do indeed have numerous 
relationships with captives. Our, our core product, Ventive IRM, is a modular system uh, that has a wide breadth of functionality covering insurance management, technical insurance management, and risk management, uh, safety management, as well as enterprise risk management. So a significant proportion of our clients are the corporate risk and insurance teams of the well-known multinationals who could potentially use all of that functionality. And a large number of these organizations will have one or more captives. And in some cases, the captive will, if you like, piggyback off of the corporate and use some of the relevant insurance management modules, such as policy, premium earning, and claims. As such, we would call this a combined corporate captive solution. But there is a, there's another growing category, uh, which is those captives that want to manage their data independently of the parent corporate and will contract directly with us. These can range in size and complexity, but we, we typically find the sweet spot in captives that have some of the following characteristics, uh, such as they might be largely self-managed, they could have been operating for under five years, and would typically have, know, let, let's say, three or four employees. But I think the th thing that links them all together is they've, they're starting to outgrow spreadsheets. They've recognize the inherent constraints of spreadsheets and want to realize the efficiencies and the opportunities that could arise by replacing spreadsheets with a system. And finally, I'd say that they are, you know, if they're looking to grow the captive, uh, that's where they recognize they can use a system and the system automation to support this growth. Welcome back to GCP 36, where I am joined by Lauren Nihal of ArcelorMittal. Lauren, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are also very active on the firmer board and take a leading role in relation to captives, as I understand it. The, the 2020 European Risk Manager Survey showed that 43% of risk managers are considering the option of captives in 2020 compared to just 15% in 2018. So quite a significant increase. Considering, Lauren, we've, we've seen very little activity in terms of new formations of captives in Europe in the last 10 years, does this statistic of, of much greater interest in today's market surprise you at all? No, absolutely not. I mean, it, it, it's fully logical to see a, a correlation between insurance, an insurance hardening market and, and the rise of other self-financing solution. And as we have said, you know, a captive is part of that toolkit of, of self-financing uh, mechanism. You know, basically, insurance has been an efficient tool to, to finance the consequences of risk over the last 20 years. But with the hardening market, it, it becomes to be less cost effective for, for organization. And, and the shortage of insurance capacity for some exposure also, I mean, push risk and insurance manager to explore other ways of financing risk. So within this context, the use of captive companies will will rise. I mean, I have no doubt about that. The question is around the timing. You know, the hardening market has already started and you need a bit of time to be able to fully utilize your your captive. Um, so I hope for some of them, it's not uh, too late. But basically, this statistic is not surprising me at all. Yeah, neither myself uh, at all. And obviously, one of the hurdles to captive formations, you could say in, in the last 10 years has, has been the introduction of, of Solmty 2. And it's not particularly helpful to captives, although I'm sure many large captives are quite enjoying many of the benefits that Solmty 2 has brought. 
what changes i mean i also believe lauren there's, a, there's an ongoing consultation now and, and review concerning solvency 2 from iopa in brussels what changes if any would firma like to see regarding the, the regulation of captives under solvency 2 and and do you believe there's any hope of seeing any change in the future what we have done at, at Firma 11 is that we have started a dialogue, and I have to say it has been quite positive and constructive with the AIOPA uh, over the last years. You, you, you may know that Firma has a representative within the what they call the IRSG, which is the Insurance and Reinsurance Stakeholder Group within AIOPA, where you have representatives from the industry, uh, and Firma is one seat representing the risk and insurance management um, uh, community. So with regard to solvency two, what we have tried to do, I mean, with in, in our dialogue with the AEOPA, is to promote basically two main objectives. The first one is to strengthen the proportionality principle, meaning that we are making proposals and suggestions to the authorities uh, in the way we would hope uh, to reduce the workload and the complexity, for instance, around reporting and, and governance, uh, for less complex or smaller insurance companies, including, of course, captives. But our objective is also to promote and to defend the interest of the, the, the whole industry, uh, because we believe uh, uh, smaller insurance companies create more competition in the market, which is beneficial for the, the insurance buyers. And the second objective around Solvency 2 is to have more consistency. So the, the, the point is really the principle of proportionality uh, is not applied in a consistent way by all national authorities in the European countries. And what we have tried to promote in our dialogue with AIOPA is, is let's say, a kind of methodology uh, for having a more predictable and consistent process in the way national authorities assess the ways they could apply uh, the proportionality principle. So in a way, to have a really European way uh, of, of applying proportionality instead of just a national one, we have to say that it's something that, of course, is heard by, by AIOPA. But as you can imagine, you know, there are lots of political discussion at European level and at AIOPA level around that. We believe we are making some, some progress and we really hope that some changes uh, will, will be applied in, in, uh, in the revised, let's say, or improved version of Solvency 2 that should come in the next years. Fantastic. I think it's really interesting you're taking the approach to also talking about smaller insurers and the benefits they have for risk buyers and, and, and the market as a whole. I think that's probably a smart move to combine that conversation uh, with captives as well. So so good luck good luck to you and Firma on, on those efforts and we'll be watching it closely. The, the other big area, of course, um, which has been a challenge to captives and, and Firma have been involved in in recent years is the ongoing dialogue with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, regarding its BEPS or Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Guidelines in relation to captives. Now, this is a, a long story, an ongoing story. We've, we've covered a bit of this before in previous episodes. Do you think progress is, is being made in explaining the value and rationale for captives to tax authorities and the OECD? And again, what role is Firma playing in that? Yeah, so, so Firma has had also, of course, you know, had a, a dialogue with the OECD around around BEPS and reproduced a couple of, of, of reports and proposals to them. Uh, but I have to say that the, the, the transfer pricing guidance on, on financial transaction issued by the OECD in, in February this year was clearly a disappointment. I mean, all our efforts at, at, at Firma 
uh, in our dialogue with the OECD were aimed at a couple of objectives. Uh, of course, it was to, 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 to improve the understanding about the use of captive companies uh, by, by the authorities. And once again, as for Solvency 2, we were promoting consistency uh, in the way BEPS principle would be applied to, to captive by national authorities. And we suggested a couple of guidelines for the OECD around, you know, business rational pricing uh, and substance uh, for, 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 for national authority to assess captive operation and how they should address that from a tax perspective. So these, you know, that we believe there were lots of misperception from the authorities about how and, and why captive are, are set up. And I have to say that if you read the, uh, the transfer pricing guidance document, unfortunately, these misperceptions are still there. You know, you, st you can still read uh, things like captive have a lighter regulatory regime, which is not correct. If we look yeah. at Solvency 2, they, they are still saying that tax and, and regulatory arbitrage are, you know, one of the drivers to set up a captive, uh, which we believe is not, is not correct. Uh, they also say things like, you know, fronting insurance companies are indifferent to the level of premium paid by uh, insured entity, which once again, uh, is not really correct. So with regard to the objective we had, you know, around consistency and, and once again, proportionality in the way the BAPE guidelines would be applied, what we start to experience in the market is, is, is a very aggressive, inconsistent and, and disproportionate in a way approach by national authorities. You know, we, we, we see that from the French authorities, Belgium seem to start. You know, UK is also a bit, you know, now targeting some, some, some captive uh, structures. And, and they do not really target specific areas of concern, but, but simply, I would say, the captive model in itself. And, uh, and it creates a, a, a huge burden for, 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 for captives and captive owners and users, um, which is, of course, not helping, um, not helping the industry. Yeah, no, absolutely. It does. It does seem like a frustrating process, and and some of those, some of those parts that you outline there, Lauren, where the OECD is still publishing these these misconceptions about captives is is particularly frustrating. And we've just we just spent five minutes talking about solvency too, which captives are very much a part of. So to suggest they're part of a lighter regulatory regime as Europe is in, is quite absurd, as as are some of the other uh, presumptions. Yeah. Presumably now more than ever, and going back to our conversation regarding the hard market, the value of captives to corporates and to business is, is more than it has ever been in, in the past 10 or 20 years. Yes, clearly. But then we are, you know, we are back to what we were saying in the beginning about the use of captive, how, how useful it is in, in a hardening market. And, and, and so, yes, I mean, that's, that's really unfortunate that basically we have a need for captives that is growing and is and it will continue to grow because we do not expect the, the hardening market you know to stop in just a couple of months and on the other side you have a regulatory landscape that is evolving not necessarily in the right direction so you are facing a situation i mean where you should have the the the, the best potential tools the most flexible tool to support your organization in dealing with the insurance market. And on the other way, you have a lot of burden uh, around regulatory prescription and requirements that are really not helping the captive industry. So, I mean, at Firma, we would really target to continue our dialogues with, with the authorities 
for instance, with regard to the OECD, you know, we are looking with uh, some interest at, at what is happening, you know, in 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 the US, uh, where you have around 20 captive associations uh, that have um, recently filled a brief to the Supreme, with the Supreme Court to explain the concerns of the captive industry around the recent action by the, the IRS. So we really need to find a way as a, as a community to raise the concern of the whole industry because what we see coming out of, and, and especially about you know, the OECD guidance, is, is really not helping the, the, the industry. Of course, we are supportive of, of any rule helping to remove any abusive captive transaction, but what we see is not aimed at this. It, lo- it looks more like an, an arbitrary attack, I would say, on the whole captive community. So there is even greater need than in the past uh, to, to really have a constructive and continuous dialogue with the authorities to support the captive industry and, and more globally to support the, the risk and insurance management community in his response to a hardening insurance market. I'm quite very interested, in fact, to, to hear that you're kind of monitoring events on the other side of the pond in regards to how some of the US captive associations are dealing with quite a, a unique and different situation regarding the IRS there. But I think you're right. I think it does need to probably be more collaboration amongst the captive community, um, captive owners. You know, the, the businesses that use captives are, are the ones I'd expect to be the ones making the noise to the OECD and local tax authorities on this on this issue. So I wish you I wish you all the best. And 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 that is all we have time for for in this episode. A re- really great episode. And thank you to all of our guests for a really varied 35 minutes or so. Mary Ellen Moriarty of EIIA, Angus Rhodes and David Thomas at Ventive, and of course uh, Lauren Nihol at Arcelor Metal. Lauren, thank you for joining me. No, thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.